rest are swimming in data coming from governments, nonprofits, think tanks, and other agencies. There's data available to help contextualize almost any story a reporter might want to tell. How to present that information to audiences in a compelling and understandable way is something many newsrooms are struggling to figure out. It's also the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, and the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelist John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Today's guest is Alberto Cairo, the Knight Chair in Visual Journalism at the University of Miami, Florida, where he teaches courses on infographics and data visualization. He's also the director of the visualization program at UM's Center for Computational Science and the author of 2016's The Truthful Art, Data Charts and Maps for Communication. Alberto, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. In addition to your work as an academic, you spent time creating graphics and data visualizations for newsrooms in Spain and Brazil. So I'm just kind of wondering, how did data visualization become what seems to be a passion for you? It all happened by happenstance. Back in 1997, I graduated from a journalism program in Spain, and my plans originally were to work in radio. I always loved radio. So if I had followed that career, probably I would be doing podcasts today. Uh, but then in, in the last year, in 1997, I was not a very good student. So that year I couldn't find a, a, a good radio internship. Mm-hmm. I did some internships in radio uh, before. But in 1997, when I was about to finish my BA, I couldn't find one. And one of my professors at the University of Santiago de Compostela in Spain I knew that I can I can draw a little bit. So if you ask me to draw something, you know, a cow or a dog or something like that, I can sketch it out. I'm not a great artist, but I can sketch things out. So she knew that I could draw. And she got a request from a department of infographics at the local newspaper who was seeking a student who could do both journalism, but who could also do graphic design in an infographics department. I didn't know anything about infographics <laughs> at the time. Uh, but I got that internship, but basically by happenstance and thanks to this professor. And I learned to do graphics in the newsroom, both pictorial graphics and data visualizations. And I stayed in the field until this day. One of the things that, that people often debate about is is the idea of what is an infographic versus what is data visualization. Mm-hmm. Tell us what your perspective is on those, those, those topics. So a, a data visualization is simply put, the visual encoding of data. You begin with data and uh, a spreadsheet or a data set of any kind, and then you encode those numbers or you map those numbers onto spatial properties of objects, like the length, the height, the position, the angle, etc., to generate the different kinds of graphs or data maps that we use nowadays to represent data. Another method of encoding besides height, length, etc., is shade of color, for example, which is a, a widely used in, in data cartography. So that is what data visualization, in my opinion, I mean, there are many definitions, but for me, data visualization, again, is the visual representation of data. And then uh, infographics is a broader term or a, or a broader field. And an infographic or the way I like to call them, news graphics, Hmm. is the visual representation of information, not necessarily just quantitative data, 
but any kind of information in visual form. And then also is the combination of these visuals with text in some sort of narrative structure. So an infographic can be both pictorial. Think about, for instance, I don't know, the visual representation of the inner workings of a, of an airplane or a visual reconstruction of a catastrophe, of a hurricane or a, a visual explanation of an earthquake, right, in which you do a cutaway, a 3D cutaway of the terrain to show how the earthquake works. That's an, that's an infographic or a pictorial visualization, right? Not data visualization, but still a pictorial visualization. But then infographics can also include data visualization. So a, a news graphic, a narrative piece uh, that combines text and visuals can also include data visualizations like you know, bar graphs, line charts, uh, pie charts, etc., and different kinds of data maps as well. Alberto, I, I know you write about infographics, data visualization should be both functional and beautiful. But there are there are a lot of statisticians and journalists out there would, uh, that would have a hard time caring about the beautiful part of that. So how do you sell that to a hard-nosed statistician or journalist? Hey, hey, hey I'm, I'm looking for the beauty in the visualization here, Richard. Come oh, on, oh. come on. Don't hey, sell us short here, I pal. get my stereotype from you, John. Oh, come so. on. Oh, I- I am deeply offended. <laughs> That's just a joke. Okay. Uh, well, I have found that many statisticians actually have a w- very well-developed aesthetic sense. Ha! Ah, that is true of John. I, w- there, I have to give him is, that. There is always a but, though. <laughs> but, but, but they don't apply that much when they decide graphs, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so oh, piling on. Very well, they have a very well-developed sense towards, for example, art. And very good taste, but then they they don't bring that to the design of graphs. I, I'm not talking about every single statistician, but mm-hmm. you know, having worked with many communities, what you, what you mentioned is absolutely true. I think that scientists, statisticians, business analytics people, etc., need to care a little bit more about the aesthetic component of data visualization, caring a little bit more about good typography, good color good composition, good use of white space and margins, etc., to increase the readability, the readability of graphics. So the mm-hmm. aesthetic component of graphics and the functional component of graphics are actually intertwined. They cannot be separated. Graphics that are deliver the information clearly and well are usually graphics that look good. When I talk about beauty in my books, I don't talk about, I don't refer to uh, decoration of graphics. What I what I talk about and what I describe is elementary visual design, like principles of graphic mm-hmm. design. We should never be uh, an afterthought when we design a graphic. Both the function of the graphic, like designing graphics to fulfill some sort of purpose in a clear manner, and presenting that information in an elegant way and in a compelling way, go hand in hand. They are not. They cannot be separated. What suggestions do you have in terms of uh, in terms of improving practice? I have many. <laughs> do you want me to talk to journalists or do you want me to talk to statisticians and scientists? Because yeah, yes. depending well, on the audience, I give different advice. Well, let's let's answer first for the journalists and then yeah. second for the statisticians. Okay, so for journalists in general and visual designers in general, I think that we need to focus a little bit more on creating graphics that are not just spectacular and fun and attractive and clickbaity, mm-hmm. but graphics <laughs> that are deep and graphics that 
deliver information that is actually useful for people. And I am I know that I sound unfair because there are many, many, many journalists out there, in my opinion, that are doing a great job at designing graphics that basically fulfill this goal. But I remember myself like five, ten years ago creating graphics that are where, you know, it were they were okay, but you know, they could be a little bit more rigorous, they could be a little bit deeper, they could have used more research. Uh, they could have done a better job at, you know, including the advice of different sources. So that rigor, that part that comes before designing the, the visualization, it's very relevant, obviously. And then also for journalists and designers, perhaps thinking a little bit less again about creating graphics that are spectacular again, but caring more about the clarity of the graphics, not trying to be you know, super innovative all the time, but trying to be clear first. And then if you can be clear, then you can experiment with new graphic forms. I am a great advocate for experimenting with graphic forms, uh, with novel graphic forms, but only if we can only present the information clearly and compellingly. Again, all these things, all this advice that I'm that I'm giving here is advice that I would have given myself <laughs> not, that, not, that long, not that long ago. Yeah. Not that yes. long ago. So that's for journalists and for for graphic designers who mm-hmm. want to practice data visualization. And then for statisticians, scientists, business analytics, you know, IT people, etc., who produce graphs all the time and data maps care a little bit more about, you know, again, the visual design, care a little bit more about making your graphics not only clear, but also elegant and well-presented and, and beautiful, I mean, attractive, you know, improve hierarchy, for example, visual hierarchy. I have seen, for example, tons of quarterly reports in from clients of mine who, mm-hmm. you know, produce quarterlies to all the time to inform their internal audiences about their perfor- the performance of their company. And whenever I see pages full of graphs in those kinds of documents, they look really flat because mm-hmm. everything looks the same. There is no hierarchy whatsoever. All fonts are the same size. All fonts are the same style. There is no style, right? So the, you, we need to include a style. A style is also an important component, developing a good visual style. So good hierarchy, uh, good margins, good use of white space, better use of typography and color, etc. All those are things that I believe scientists in in general, uh, in a, in the broad, broadest sense of the word, could 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 put some effort on. It's not hard, and again, it's not an afterthought. It's a very very relevant element of a successful data visualization. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. The topic today, visualizing data and information. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelists, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is Alberto Cairo, Night Chair in Visual Journalism at the University of Miami, Florida. Now, Alberto, you were talking a little bit about um, sort of what journalists and designers need to keep in mind and, and sort of things that stats and maybe scientists need to keep in mind, but I am a journalist. Richard is also, you know, formerly a journalist. Uh, you are worked as a journalist. Um, there's a stereotype with our field that we get into this field because we are scared of numbers. How would you sort of encourage, you know, a journalist who maybe is uncomfortable dealing with data 
and who is also has this added sort of thing about sort of creating those infographics that are beautiful as well as sort of readable. How what would you say to those people who are kind of timid or worried about sort of diving into this field? What would you say to them to encourage them to do it? I, I think that the first step is to become friends with statisticians who can communicate well. <laughs> that's the first thing. We've and done that. John is one of those. Yes, I mean, you that's know, right. you have to become friends with the statisticians who are willing to explain to you in in terms that a lay person can understand what principles of statistics really mean, right? So what what lies behind all those scary looking formulas and calculations and mathematics, etc.? The mathematics look scary, but in many cases they are just plain arithmetic. It is a matter. It's a matter of. It's more important, at least in the beginning, when you start learning a little bit about statistics. Understanding the principles is much more important than understanding the possible deep math that lies behind them. Mm-hmm. Both things are important, but these things can be understood. So, you know, becoming friends with a statistician <laughs> or if there is no statistician around that you can become friends with, there are great books out there that you can read to at least get started and get the ball rolling. Like recently, Naked Statistics, you mm-hmm. have but bad science by Bengal Daker, who is a, both a statistician and a medical doctor. You have How Not to Be Wrong by Jordan Ellenberg, who is a mathematician, but who can communicate really well with non-mathematicians. So any of these books or all of them, if you have the time to read them all, will give you a, will, they will not give you a foundation in statistics, obviously, but they will give you a broad understanding, I believe, of how to avoid the most common kinds of mistakes that we see in the media every single day, right? Like correlation mm-hmm. doesn't mean causation or the most common ones, right? Or 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 what regression to the mean is, right? Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily need to be able to calculate regression to the mean, but it's understandable. It's something that anybody can understand at a conceptual level. So all these books help with that. And then after you take that first step, you realize that this it's not magic. I mean, it's it's logical. It's rational thinking. And then is when you are ready, I believe, to start, you know, digging a little bit deeper into the professional literature of statistics. So, you know, you can start reading, you know, basically rereading Stats 101 books and or or again, talking more to, to your statistician friends who can recommend great books to you. There are online courses that anybody can can take data science, introduction to data science courses in places like Coursera mm-hmm. and other places. Right. So those are great ways of getting into into the field and start losing the fear, because, as you said, that's right. I mean, journalists in general, I, I heard it sounds like a cliche to say that journalists get into journalism because they fear math, but it is not a cliche. That's right. a sentence that I, that I heard. <laughs> yes. I heard that in college. Yeah. Yes. I, I want to become a journalist because I, I want to write, right? Yes. I, and I still get that from my students. This is the last point that I would like to make in this answer. My introduction to data visualization and infographics course and our data journalism course are both mandatory for all our journalism students. And some students get into those classes with a little bit of fear of what those classes are going to offer. Then they realize that they are not that hard because, again, this is not magic. But some of them, a few of them get this reaction. They say, you know, oh, I want to be a writer. Why why do I need to learn all this stuff? Well, do you need to learn it? Because if you're going to become a writer, a reporter, you are going to face numbers on a regular basis. If you don't have a working understanding of what those numbers mean, what are you going to write about? Mm-hmm. So it's a really, really important idea to 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 put inside our students' brains, I believe. 
Alberto, can you think of stories, and this is speaking to the journalist in you, that aren't being done because journalism doesn't quite know how to tell that story or visualize that story because the numbers seem complicated or just too big to get our heads around? Good question. So I believe that speaking in general terms, most things related to artificial intelligence and machine learning Mm. and deep learning are still, those stories are still to be told mm-hmm. well, right? So I'm talking in a very general sense. Then we can go, we could go into the specifics because not all journalists are the same. So, and not, not all news organizations are the same. There are news organizations that are well-equipped to deal with very complex stories and large amounts of data. I'm thinking of organizations such as ProPublica in New York mm-hmm. or the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. These organizations either have statisticians on staff or journalists who are very well versed in statistics. And then they have great sources in in academia who can help with very complicated data. So I am not that concerned about, you know, big stories, worldwide stories, even if they involve the management of large amounts of data. I am much more concerned about stories at the local level. Because um, mm-hmm. smaller smaller news organizations, local and regional news organizations, often don't have the luxury of having a statistician on staff or a, or a web developer or a data visualization designer who knows the statistics, right? So in the in that cases, we we may find ourselves in a situation in which these organizations are shrinking; they are laying off more and more people every year. And there, the, there may be many, many local stories that are not being told just because these organizations don't have the muscle. And I don't really know what to do about that. But it's something that concerns me quite a lot, actually. Uh, that's something that, you know, Richard has talked a lot about as well. And, and certainly he's, uh, yeah, he's we, involved in some pro- projects yeah. t- touching on that. You want to mention we, those? We have uh, an initiative that I worked on during my leave last year was a report for Ohio Project to address the problem of shrinking staffs, particularly in rural communities or even in inner city communities where there are stories that are not going, they're not being reported. I mean, most mm-hmm. mostly because we don't have the... the uh, the staff to do that. In fact, we have now a national partner report for America. There is just an article in Pointer today about their organization, and we're they want to use us as one of their uh, their sites uh, on a regional level to uh, get more reporters hired in these areas that you know we're we we tend to call them media deserts now, where they mm-hmm, they mm-hmm, they just mm-hmm. don't have information and yeah, nobody's it's, it's telling any, these any, stories. Any other Nazis term? But you're uh, yes, you're exactly you know. right though. You you identified the problem. It sounded like you had read our report. <laughs> well, well I, I mean, I haven't, but I will. I would love to. I will read it when when, I, when if you send it to me. But I, I mean, it's it's. It's pretty obvious, right? I mean, I, I see it locally in Miami. Even if Miami is a, is a well-covered area, we still have the Miami Herald, which is mm-hmm. much smaller than it used to be. We have a, yes. the Spanish stations, Univision, Telemundo. We have, you know, we have the uh, the Miami News Times. We have plenty of organizations down here, but still, the the super local stuff feels not covered well enough. We have a special election, for example, going on down here. I barely hear about that in local media, right? And, you know, who knows how many 
you know, corrupt politicians get away <laughs> with the stuff that they are doing just because they are not reporters who are able to, you know, download data sets or FOIA re- request yes, data sets right. that they can analyze and discover things mm-hmm. that may be worth uh, be, you know, worth putting under the public eye. Uh, we don't know, but that's a, it's something that really worries me. Because yes. who is going to do that job if news organizations are gone? It's not about the New York Times. It's not about the, about the Washington Post. Those organizations are going to survive, I believe, mm-hmm. in the long term. And nonprofit organizations like the Texas Tribune or ProPublica, et cetera, are doing great job and they need to be praised. But there are many things that they cannot cover. Who are going to be the, the, the ultra-local ProPublicas in this country yes. or anywhere in the world for that matter? You're listening to Stats and Stories, and our discussion today focuses on information and data visualization. Our guest is Knight Chair in Visual Journalism at the University of Miami, Alberto Cairo. Alberto, we were talking a lot about the problems around local reporting, uh, and you mentioned the fact that you know um, data visualization and, and these infographics are a really compelling way of, t- of telling stories, an important way. And as I was listening to you, I was thinking about the fact that a few years ago when the New York Times published Snowfall, um, that seemed to be like this moment when jur- journalists were like, oh, we have to do data visualization now. We have to do something really big, loud, and, and exciting with, with information. Are there local examples? Are there smaller examples that you can point to um, that you think are good ex- good examples of the way smaller newsrooms are doing this kind of work that you think um, smaller newsrooms around the country could also sort of pick up and carry forward? I know the Charleston Mail, I think, um, or Gazette, I can't remember the name of the paper, um, won uh, a, an award for their reporting on the opioid epidemic um, and it, through very simple infographics. Are there other examples you can point to um, for people listening uh, for ways of, of these newsrooms that are struggling to be able to do this? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are plenty of examples out there. There are still tons of courageous journalists that produce great work with very, very few resources and still, you know, manage to put out great, uh, great projects. The first one that comes to mind is the Tampa Bay Times, yeah. uh, which which won a Pulitzer mm-hmm. Award a couple of years ago, thanks to a project titled Failure Factories, I believe. That's that's the title of the project, Failure Factories, which is a, an exploration, a data-driven exploration of how increasing racial segregation in school systems lead to worse performance in those school systems. It's a very compelling story. It's a great investigation. And it's a great example of how to produce that kind of work with just, you know, two or three reporters, one of them very well versed in visualization and one or two that are just traditional, you know, shoe leather reporters and how, you know, working together, they can produce this kind of great work. The Miami Herald is doing great work down here, uh, in my opinion, as well, also with shrinking resources. Again, they, mm-hmm. they are, unfortunately, they are not the newspaper than they, that they used to be many years ago, not because the reporters are worse, but because there are fewer reporters mm-hmm. and designers. But they still put out great stuff um, on a regular basis. They do investigations. For example, one of our adjunct professors here, the University of Miami, is uh, Nicolas Nehames, who is one of their investigative reporters. He's also a, a computer-assisted reporter, if you mm. if we still use that term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you remember that term? <laughs> yes. Com- computer-assisted reporter, which is basically the president of data journalism yes. or data yes. reporter. 
so he he does a lot of Excel analysis and he he focuses on real estate, but he also does stories about many other many other things. So those are the examples that come to mind immediately. But there may be there may be I mean there are many others. I, I believe that in the truthful art, I mentioned a project by the Seattle Times. Yeah. And I don't remember. I mean, yeah. there are many out there, and and some of them are showcased in my book or and in both my books, and and my website. So you you mentioned some some guidance to to journalists that want to know more about you know build up their skills and the statistics. I mean, a question for the, the the stat community is: What would you recommend in terms of uh, building up not just the the sense of aesthetics and design, which I think your books are a couple of great examples of of doing that, but but also just in terms of the narrative part of the story. You know, I think that sometimes you find that that people that that are building some of the visualizations and and have the technical skills are not to do such such displays are not necessarily good at at the narrative that complements it. Yes, I completely agree. And and I understand why that happens. Sometimes when I do talks or conversations like this one, I, I sound sometimes like I am bashing scientists because they, <laughs> they, they don't communicate well. But there is a reason for that. There is a core key difference between how journalists approach stories, quotation marks in there, and scientists approach stories. So journalists approach stories in a way that always strives to simplify, find the main takeaway, transform that main takeaway into the headline, and then try to simplify things no matter what, right? And scientists and statisticians in particular are more about the nuance and the exceptions for good reason, right? So a scientist may tell you, well, I think that the main takeaway of the research project that I'm conducting is such and such, but here are the nuances, here are the exceptions, here are the limitations, here are the things that we still need to do research about, blah, blah, blah. And they do it for good reasons, that what science is about. You always open a door to continuing, continuing doing research in the future. So no scientific truth is ever uh, permanent. It's always a subject to change, right? So I think that there is a way, though, to establish dialogues between journalists and statisticians, and this podcast is a great example, to learn from each other. And the point that I like, that I like to make in my talks that are open to the public, therefore I have both scientists and journalists in the, in, the new, in the room, is that journalists, we need to learn to think a little bit more like scientists mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, always incorporating the nuances, always incorporating the uncertainty of the data into our stories, particularly when the uncertainty is crucial to understanding the story, the exceptions, the counter arguments, etc. And then, you know, whenever we deal with data, particularly if we manipulate this data, always releasing the data and explaining the methodology behind the manipulations of the data. That's what scientists do. And some news organizations are already doing that. ProPublica, for example. Yeah. Whenever they publish a story, they publish the methodology of the story, not just the story, right? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, scientists and statisticians, I believe, should learn a little bit more about narrative techniques and graphic design. And this sounds like anathema to some scientists and statisticians, but I'm going to quote a statistician. All right. So there is a there is a famous book um, titled uh, Statistics as Principal Argument by Robert Abelson. So Abelson used to teach statistics at Yale University. And Statistics as Principal Argument is a book about statistics, obviously. But in the prologue of the book, he, he describes narrative techniques. He says, well, a statistics argument is rhetoric. It's rhetoric based on data. You are trying to persuade someone 
of something, right? You just use data for that. You use sound, science, and statistics for that, but it's still rhetoric. Therefore, in the prologue, he says, whenever I, I teach statistics and whenever I, I'm teaching my students to use statistics, they tend to get a little bit lost into the methodology, right? They start thinking about what, met what method should I use here? What technique should I use here? And in the prologue, he says, no, 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 stop just one second, right? If you were to report your argument or your paper in the newspaper, what would the headline be? So mm -hmm. what is the, what is the eleva elevator speech over here? Begin with that. Begin with the elevator speech, with the headline, and then talk to me about the methodology and the exceptions, etc. Build an argument around it. Talk about the limitations, but always begin with the main takeaway. Because that's yes. what journalists do. We, we, we begin with the headline and the, and the lead, the introduction to the story, right? Yeah, great advice. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Alberto Cairo, Knight Chair in Visual Journalism at the University of Miami of Florida. Thank you so much for being here. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.